Tonight's presentation is titled God's Grace and Our Freedom to Obey. Dr. Henman shares the power of God's grace in our daily lives. These presentations integrate 22 years' experience as a psychotherapist and educator, 15 years of personal recovery as an adult child, and 14 years of accepting Christ's gift of grace. He uses illustrations from daily life to demonstrate the role of grace in the process of change. His style of presenting combines humor and sensitive self-disclosure in a thought-provoking, impactful way. The lectures can be experienced over and over, gaining something new each time. He gives useful tools and principles to help in gaining access to God's free gift. Tonight's presentation has been edited into two 45-minute segments. Part 1, Earning the Free Gift of Grace, and Part 2, Relaxing into His Image. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Henman. The talk tonight, <clears throat> as Don said, is, is a culmination of, of over 20 years as a psychotherapist and educator, and about 17 years in recovery, and 15 years as a Christian. And you'll notice that that's kind of backwards as compared to how most people do it, which is typical for me. I was a therapist before I got into recovery. I got into recovery before I became a Christian. And like I say, usually people do that in reverse order. But what it did was gave me a very unique perspective in looking at the process of change. The topic tonight, God's grace and our freedom to obey, has a lot to do with looking at the assumptions that underlie certain words. Most of us would not put freedom and obey together. We would think those would somehow be mutually exclusive. As we go into the talk tonight, I hope you will be able to see that in fact, through God's plan, we can have freedom and obeying at the same time. Most of all is a very deep and very real desire to share my big brother Jesus with those of you that were here tonight to, to listen to the talk. When I gave the talk on transforming grace, I kept talking about my big brother Jesus and then often referred to him just as my big brother and, and some people got very confused. Who is this relative that he keeps speaking of? I have my little brother is behind the camera, uh, but my big brother is the one that's most responsible for giving this talk. Many times we don't think of Jesus as being our big brother. We think of him as Christ, we think of him as, as, as King of King and Lord of Lords, and he is that. But when he's in his own living chamber, and he takes off his crown, he's my big brother. You can't curl up with a king. I can't. But there's something about the concept of big brother, not in the sense of 1984 as a, as a force of power, but as a relationship, a loving big brother. It's what allows grace to become real in a relational sort of way. 
This talk is designed to follow up on the talk that was given last January in Houston on transforming grace, healing the wounds that bind. And in that talk, we talked about self-esteem as it relates to the Christian perspective and the process of healing emotional wounds. <clears throat> we talked about the six T's in spirituality. Now, as a dyslexic, you could see where my spelling could be off in terms of spirituality having six T's. But the importance of those T's in spirituality, particularly by the time we get to the last two T's, which are temperament and most of all, transparency. I think by the time we're done tonight, you'll be able to appreciate the importance of transparency in the Christian walk and in the freedom to obey. We talked about a 2,000-year-old new program. New program in care is about 2,000 years old. It's been blatantly plagiarized from gospel, and I don't think God minds one bit. It's been translated into American, into practical application, without, I hope, violating the spiritual tenets that underlie the, the new program. We look at the difference between trying to be good enough to accept and get God's free gift of grace. Now, I want you to really hear this. The difference between trying to be good enough to earn God's free gift of grace versus allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us in the process of change. What I see every day of my life in working with clients, Christian and non-Christian alike, is people trying so hard to be good enough, trying to be perfect enough to earn the free gift of, of God's love, to earn the ability to feel safe being accepted by other people. Now, I want you to really think about something. How many of you would be willing to seek out somebody who is perfect to hang out with? Someone who is truly perfect how many of you would want to seek out that kind of person to spend time with? I wouldn't. If I'm around perfect people, I tend to feel uncomfortable. And that's the real reason I'm as imperfect as I am, is to make all of you comfortable. <laughs> Which leads to every talk I've given since the very first talk I ever gave, God always gives me a picture to share at the beginning of the talk. This came to me yesterday because the whole talk is about perception. About 12 years ago, 12 and a half years ago, when Jesse, my older son, was just a newborn baby, oh, two, three, four weeks old, I was changing a really dirty diaper. Now, you've probably not had the experience of changing a really dirty diaper. To understand the context of this particular picture, though, you need to understand how squeamish finicky I have been in my life. And I was changing this diaper, and I got some brown stuff on my finger. <laughs> and I screamed to the other one, Sonia! Sonia! I knew I was going to die. I knew for sure at that moment it was all over. This brown stuff was going to ruin me for all time. And Sonia came back with words of wisdom. You can wash it off. Oh, I went ahead and finished the diaper, gave Jesse to Sonia, 
wash my hands. That piece of wisdom took me through training pants <laughs> and two sons. Now, I don't volunteer with others, but with my own children, I felt that changing diapers was an important part of relationship building. But that piece of information that you could actually wipe the brown stuff off your fingers gave me the freedom to do something very important. Just really think about that. Because once we gain perspective, when we begin to really understand the assumptions that underlie our actions, and suddenly we're given a new way of looking, new choices are generated. As we look at things differently, suddenly new choices become available to us. From Matthew, Jesus called a little child and had him come up next to a group that had gathered. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Now, I'm sure that most of you have heard that many times. But I want you to really think what he's saying here. Because we try to be intellectually smart enough to figure out the gospel. We try to get our most articulate debate style going to argue fine points of theology. How many little kids do you know that argue theology? Kids just are kids. And that's what Jesus says we need to do. Not become PhDs. Not become the most learned of the learned. But become as little children. Because then the nature of the relationship between Jesus and us becomes much more powerful. As our big brother, if we are children, the following happens. How many of you have children? Okay. How many of you have at least two? Well, Jesse is 12, Nathan is 10. When Jesse, this is much more true early, become his little children. When Nathan was very young, two, three, four years old, he was a clone to Jesse. Jesse would go this way, Nathan would go this way. Jesse would go this way, Nathan would, he would follow him, he would drive Jesse nuts. Because no matter what Jesse would be doing, Nathan would want to copy him. In psychology, we call that modeling. And that is taking on the behavior, the tone, the attitude of the person that we're copying. It's the most effective, most powerful form of learning known to man, modeling. Now, I wonder if God knew that or if he waited for a psychologist to tell him about it. I wonder why it is that when Christ came, he didn't come as father, did he? He didn't come as royalty in earthly terms, did he? He came lowly born, had nothing from the time he was born till the time he died. And yet here, 2,000 years later, we're meeting to talk about him. If we can allow ourselves to let go of our heads 
and find our heart, change becomes possible. Because then we try to be like our big brother rather than trying to figure out what the rules are. Guess what happens when you try to figure out the rules? We rebel. Or, excuse me, I rebel. And some of you that I know, I know you rebel too, so I'm in good company. But it's the nature of that special relationship when we become as children and fall in love with our big brother who loves us perfectly that it becomes possible to become like him. Now, I am an adolescent, not in chronological age, but in temperament and in years as a Christian. I'm an, I'm an adolescent. And to show you that, I want to give you an idea of the relationship I have with my big brother. When I was busy writing the study guide to go with the handbook, and I was saturating at the word processor, and I'd sit there and I'd work and work and work, and I'd take a break. And I was out there watching TV, and I got this message, read James. No! I'm taking a break. I'm writing this book. I don't want to, you know, God, give me a break. I'm tired. Now, isn't that obedient? You notice it's just, now, I'm here because I'm a good example of how you're supposed to be, right? No. I'm simply an example of someone who's willing to be transparent as is in transit. And that's exactly what happened. No, I don't want to. I went back to watching TV. Later, read James. Oh, come on. I'm doing all this work. I don't want to. You notice the, the, the whining tone? Doesn't that just get you right here? After about three or four times, all right. And I went and I got my Bible and I read James. What a book. James is an incredible book on recovery, an amazing book on recovery. James is my kind of guy. I mean, he's hard-hitting. It's like sitting across from me in therapy. Not fun. Hard work. Loving. Honesty, loving, accuracy in a non-judgmental way. But James really does say it the way it is. Let's hear what he says from James. If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. And he will be glad to tell you, for he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. Oh, I don't want to bother him. How many times do we do that? Who am I to bother God? He's probably on another call anyway. Either James is a liar, which I don't believe, or else maybe God wants us to bother him because it's not a bother. Just like when Jesse or Nathan come to me and say, Dad, how do I handle this? How do I handle that? It's not a bother. It's the best gift they could give me. God wants us to bother him, in quotes. He wants us to ask so he can give us wisdom. But notice wisdom. As I had mentioned in the Transforming Grace talk back in Houston, 
Our society is drowning in knowledge, truly drowning in knowledge and starving for wisdom. I see people who know scripture right and left. They could quote anything, but they don't have the mind of God, wisdom. The wisdom is what's transforming. With wisdom, knowledge is a beautiful bell, a sound that is just piercing in a beautiful way. But without wisdom, knowledge is a bell without a clangor. It doesn't make a beautiful sound. It just doesn't do the same thing. So when we're talking about recovery, we're talking about wisdom. And from that mindset of wisdom, knowledge has meaning but they're not the same. James goes on to say, and it was a happy day for him, meaning God, when he gave us our new lives through the truth of his word, and we became, as it were, the first children in his new family. Again, this isn't Jim speaking. This is God speaking through James. Those of you that are Christians are part of his family. It isn't a formal relationship. It's not a three-piece suit and tie relationship. It's blue jeans, work shirt, scuzzy hair, gunja breath, family. How many of you, when you get up in the morning, look perfect? My hair looks like alfalfa. Now, Sonia, on the other hand, she wakes up and her hair always looks nice. And she puts a comb through. I'm not sure why, because it always looks wonderful. But me, I look like Godzilla's clone. It looks really kind of scary. But that's how I can look when I go to my big brother. Not a disrespect. Not disrespect, but love. Intimacy. Intimacy. It's like if I'm stuck in the snow. Now, this is how Jim would handle it. <laughs> Wheels going like this. You ever drive in the snow when you're stuck? You know all you have to do is just hit the gas, right? And if that doesn't work, hit the gas harder. Isn't that the human solution? If it doesn't work, do it harder. Do what doesn't work harder and harder and harder. Works for me. I've been doing it for 46 years. And I get out of the car and I kick the tire. That's always important. You men know that. It lets us think we know what we're doing. So I kick the tire and I go. And here's Jesus. Kind of saunders up. Says, well, Jim, what's the problem? Well, this stupid snowbank attacked my car. It's not my fault. It's the snowbank's fault. You notice that usually, too. And he says, well, Jim, how's it working? Well, I don't know. I keep hitting the gas pedal and nothing happens. I just keep getting deeper and deeper in this rut. You probably never had that experience. And he says, well, you know, Jim, um, you see that branch over there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what would happen if you put it under the tire? I don't know. I go over and I get the, the limb and I put it under the tire. Uh, Jim, what's, what's that over there? Oh, it's another branch. 
Oh, think I should do that too? Oh, okay. So I put a couple branches under the tire. He says, now, very gently goose the gas. See, Jesus doesn't talk in King James. He doesn't. He talks in American to Americans. And he talks in English to Englishmen. And he talks in Swahili to Swahilians. <laughs> but I'm a doctor. <laughs> Isn't that scary? And so I goose the gas, and the car moves forward onto the limbs, and I'm safe. And I go on about my journey. Do you know how many times I turn to him, and he says, boy, you're really blowing it, Jim. What are we going to do? Honesty. You're really blowing it, Jim, which I hear frequently. Less frequently than I did 15 years ago, more frequently than I will sometime in the future. That's my hope. That's my belief. But I still blow it frequently. And he's honest about that. He doesn't say, that's okay. We're going to be nice, and I'm just going to lie through my teeth to you and say it's fine. Isn't it just fine? You know? No. He says, Jim, you're blowing it. What are we going to do about it? And that's the key. What are we going to do about it? He never says, well, fix it. I'm sick and tired of this snow driving that you do. Next time, you're on your own, bud. That's not my big brother. Now, if it was me, probably so. But luckily, I'm not Jesus. Luckily, he's Jesus. He doesn't have my nature. I'm gaining his nature. Hear the difference. We often confuse ourselves about that. We need to become aware of the presuppositions, the underlying assumptions that we're dealing with in our daily lives. In the Care Handbook, I'd like to read a few of the assumptions that, that were written under Principle 7, a commitment to a growing relationship with a loving higher power. Now, I understand that by using the term loving higher power, that's been a stumbling block for some Christians. Had I said a commitment to, to Christ or to Jesus, that would have been a stumbling block to non-Christians. Now, it's interesting how we deal with this. If you look at it from the standpoint of Romans of not being a stumbling block, I would rather be a stumbling block for Christians as a Christian than a stumbling block to non-Christians who don't know him yet, who have been beat up in his name, not by him, not by his nature, because when Jesus says, do it in my name, he's saying in my nature. Not my name, meaning Jim. But any of you that know me know I have a nature. There's a, I have a way of being. And if someone is going to be communicating to you for me in my nature, using my name, then they better use my nature. Jesus doesn't beat people up unless you're a Pharisee. I don't know. Anyway, now let that stand. Hear this question. Why should I believe in a loving higher power when you can't prove that one exists? Versus, this is the power of questions. Versus, why shouldn't I believe in a loving higher power when you can't prove that one doesn't exist? Do you hear those two questions? 
slightly different, the implications are profound. One, why should I believe? How often do you hear this? Why should I believe when you can't prove it? And you're sitting there going real stupid. Well, I don't know. I guess you shouldn't. You know, I mean, it's hard to argue that, that question, isn't it? But, but the other question is, since you can't prove that it doesn't exist, why not? Suddenly you don't feel stupid. The nature of the questions become very, very important. What would it cost me to believe in a loving higher power if one really does exist versus what would it cost me to believe in a loving higher power if one really doesn't exist? Cost-benefit ratio, that's what makes the world go around, isn't it? What is the cost of believing in a loving Jesus? What does it cost to believe in the Holy Spirit if it's true? Nothing. What does it cost to believe that if it's not true? Nothing. It's just good, healthy living, whether it's true or not. I believe it's true. But even if I didn't believe it were true, it's still healthy living. It's practical attitudes for change, whether or not it were true. I got some flack in the Transforming Grace uh, talk because I said the model works whether or not you acknowledge the author. And that's true. The model of change of the Christian gospel works whether you believe in Jesus or not. When you add your belief in Jesus, it becomes supercharged. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here. That's a separate whole issue. When I talk about Christianity, I talk about it in terms of recovery, the process of change, the process of building healthy self-esteem. And for that task, you do not have to believe in the author to accept the model. But when you add the model and the author together, amazing things happen. When you begin to actually believe that the Holy Spirit is not something that is this concept, but is an actual powerful force that comes from inside out, what that does for you is incredibly empowering. There's no cost for believing it if it's false. There's no cost for believing it if it's true. But there's tremendous value, I believe, in believing it. If there is a loving higher power, then why does God allow bad things to continue happening in the world? Oh, got you on that one, Jim. You know, if God's so neat, how come all this terrible stuff's happening? Yeah! <laughs> Answer that one. Well, here's where I'm confused. God warns us, this is a cesspool. In his word, he says, danger, watch out. This is not a safe place to be healthy. He warns us of that, and yet we blame him for what he's warning us about? I don't know, I, I don't understand that. Is it useful to believe in a loving higher power? Will it help me in my recovery? Absolutely. Whether you take the name slash nature of Christ into that, 
or if you just take the body of, of attitudes and beliefs, it will help you in your recovery. The issue of salvation is a totally separate issue than the issue of recovery. The issue of spirituality and the issue of religion are not the same. You can have both, but they don't automatically go together. It's these kind of distinctions that we must make in order to have accurate choices in the present. I believe there's two basic forces in the world, basic forces, fear and love. Fear and love. Often we are so afraid of our feelings. You probably know someone that's afraid of their feelings. None of you here, but people that aren't here, it's always the ones that are here that, that don't have that. But you probably know someone that's afraid of their feelings. So they kind of cut off from the neck down. That was me. Uh, by the time I got out of high school, I was Mr. Spock. I didn't have the pointed ears. I had more hair, but no pointed ears. And I was so afraid of feelings, I was totally cut off from the neck down. Boring! Oh, I was boring. But the fact is, I had no access to my heart. Now we have a little problem. If, if, if God is going to write his message on our heart, and we're cut off from the neck down, we have a little receiving problem, don't we? When we have people, it's what I call white-knuckle Christianity, that they're every, every muscle in their body is in, is in isometric tension, trying to be good enough, there's no way they can receive something from the Holy Spirit in their heart. Because that tension cuts off the signal. So we need to take a deep breath. Let's all take a deep breath, just for fun. It's free. And just realize there is actually more room in our being when we begin to relax into where we're starting. The reaction compass in the handout is all about the difference between fear and love. Out of fear comes things such as judgmentalness, out of fear comes blaming. Out of fear comes denial, defensiveness, cutting off of feelings, dishonesty. They all come out of fear. They come out of fear. If you'll see, three out of four of the quadrants are based on fear. You see the little character with the, uh, with the vest and lantern? The decision to accept self, the vertical line, to accept self in transit, and the decision on the, ver on the horizontal line to accept others in transit without judging ourselves or others allows us to bypass, to disempower fear. Love is not a gushy emotion. Love is a very powerful force. It's an attitude. It's, it's the mind of God. It's that kind of, of, of wisdom that illuminates rather than darkens. And that's what we need in this world, a little more light and a little bit less darkness. And we can't afford to continue the darkness. The darkness is killing us. Whether the judgment comes against self which is a little character with the shield, 
get passiveness, self-consciousness, depression, and anxiety, whether it's judging, judging other people and they're, they're crummy, I'm good, which would be self-righteousness, anger, and aggressiveness, or the most common one, which is I'm not okay and you're not okay, and we're gonna go around defending and blaming and judging and defending and blaming and judging, and you get frustration, defensiveness, and despair. You get nowhere real quick. You get nowhere in that kind of darkness. So we need to think about the decisions that we're making. We need to think about, are we going to continue judging ourselves, judging others, and feed the darkness? Or are we going to relax into starting where we're starting, holding up that little lantern, which I believe to be the Holy Spirit, and to be curious? So when uh, Betty says, boy, Jim, this is the worst talk you've ever given. I can hold that lantern up and go, hmm, well, I don't know, I thought there was one that was worse than this. <laughs> Let me look at it. Let's see, what was it that, you know, and I'm curious. Yeah, give me that feedback. I want the feedback. What is it you're telling me? Because if, in fact, during this talk I'm blowing it, I want to know, because that's not my goal. My goal is to give a talk that comes alive. My goal is to give a talk that helps people look a little differently at the familiar. That's my goal. If I'm achieving that, great. If I'm not achieving that, great. At least I know it. Heads I win, tails I win. How many of us live our lives that way? Versus heads I lose, tails I lose, which is the fear-oriented kind of a position. So what does God have to say about this from Psalms? Be still and know that I am God. Let's go back to that snowbank. <laughs> Who can think with that noise? Huh? I know none of you do this, but I'll tell you, when I'm being that noisy, I can't think for squat. It's clinical talk. But when I stop and I realize God is God and Jim is Jim, ah, what a relief. How many of us have a full-time job trying to be God? I mean, face it, God blows it right and left. God likes people I don't like. It shows he must have bad taste. <laughs> or maybe my vision isn't quite up to his vision. Think that could be it? Nah. But when we're busy judging, we're busy frantically trying to fix it on our own, what a relief to be still and know that I am God. What a great start. And then what did, when Jesus asked the, the learned uh, scribe, what is the summation of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. No, no, no. Give me some, something I can sink my teeth into, God. Give me some rules that I can rebel against. Give me a set of rules so I can rebel. I mean, this is, you know, love? I'm supposed to love my neighbor? and love me too? 
but Lord, I'm a scuzz bucket. Yeah, God says, you're right, Jim. <laughs> you're a scuzz bucket. If you want to look at it that way, I don't see you that way, Jim. Yeah, you're real flawed. But you know something? I love you just the way you is. In transit. Scuzz bucket and all. Look at David. Whew. Look at David from the Old Testament. My goodness gracious. He makes me look like an angel. One of God's favorites. But what did David do? He gave transparency. Smite my enemy! Smite. Oh boy, he just, you know, stamp him on the ground, squish him in the ground. You know, I mean, David was my kind of guy, you know? Uh, just let's hit that sword, let's cut those bad guys' heads off. God loved him. He sends Bathsheba's husband to get killed? Now, is this something God wants to have happen? No. Is God happy about the action that David's doing? No. Does he love David? Yes. Is he in relationship with David? Absolutely. Because David, in the midst of being the scuzz bucket that he was being, would come back and say, well, oops, <laughs> I blew it. Whatever you say, God, I will, I will take that punishment. I'm not there yet. I'm not that far along. But we have to stop trying so hard to be perfect and move toward transparency. From Hebrews, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Any of you that were at the Transforming Grace talk know about Don't Think of Purple or from any of the journey talks. I use this frequently because it's such a powerful dynamic. I won't do it all the way, but if you try to not think of something, that's what floods your mind. So what does God say? Keep your eyes on Jesus. He doesn't say, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. He says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, if you're keeping your eyes on Jesus, you won't sin. But if you're trying not to sin, you sin more and more and more. We've got to look at where our eyes are. We need to look at what we're trying to achieve here. How do we do it? Our own power? I showed you what a great person I was in the snowbank. I can't turn to me very well. I usually blow it. Paul says to Timothy, this being so, I want to remind you to stir into flame the strength and boldness that is in you, that entered into you when I laid my hand upon your head and blessed you. For the Holy Spirit, God's gift, does, does not want you to be afraid of people, but to be wise and strong, and to love them and enjoy being with them. But God, they're bad, and I'm good. I can't be around bad people, because I'm good. And it might rub off. Is that Jesus' plan? Did he hang around the Pharisees and reject the tax collectors and prostitutes? That is how it was, right? Read the same book, right? He just hang around the proper people, politically correct, right? Wasn't Jesus always politically correct? You're talking about the same Jesus here, right? 
What's the confusion? The fact is, the only people he ever really judged were the Pharisees that were busy judging everybody else. What did he say to the woman that was caught in adultery? Who's left to accuse you? Go and sin no more. He didn't get it right. He's supposed to, to judge them when they do something wrong, right? Just like we do to ourselves. Isn't that what we do? We take this big mallet and just beat the snot out of ourselves? For every sin that we do, we feel guilty for it, and we feel bad about it, and we're so busy feeling guilty and bad that we forget to change. Paul says to the Romans, For you did, not, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit empowers our spirit to begin to comprehend the incomprehensible, which is that we're king's kids. Snotty nose, puffy eyes and all. We're king's kids. We're royalty. We just don't act like it. Instead, we figure, let's just improve on God's plan. It's one of the big themes in the transforming grace is man's propensity to improve on perfection and always go downhill. The dangers of legalism, the dangers of, of trying to be so good to make ourselves into his likeness. For, again, from the handbook, it's called the okayness trap that was given to me from a friend of mine named Les. Um, one common pattern that is often a part of old programming. Now, old program means that which comes sort of automatically or naturally when you're an automatic pilot. That's what I mean by old program. Uh, one common pattern is the process of trying to prove that we are okay. This impossible trap works as follows. The harder we try to prove that we are okay, the bigger the question of our okayness becomes. The bigger the question becomes, the more insecure we feel. The more insecure we feel, the more self-conscious we become. The more self-conscious we are, the worse our performance becomes. There is no way out of this vicious circle as long as we accept the assumption that we must prove our value. Stop and discuss. Take a moment to discuss that with yourself. To think about how much energy goes into the impossible task of proving your okayness, whether to ourselves, to the ones we love, or most ridiculous of all, to God, who knows everything. You know all that stuff you were hiding and you weren't, you weren't going to mention? He knows it. You aren't fooling God. But he doesn't really care if you are keeping your eyes on the Lord. If you are moving in the direction of that love, that's what he cares about. Does that mean that it's okay with him when we sin? No. Does it mean that the sin that we do is okay? No. We get the natural consequences of our actions and our choices. If I smoke four packs of cigarettes a day, it's not God that gives me lung cancer. It's Jim that gives me lung cancer from the four packs of cigarettes. 
If I'm continually driving 120 miles an hour on the way up to Sonora in those curves, is it God that kills me in a car accident? It's my driving style. God gets the black eye for most of the things that we do. Or we even give the credit to Satan. Now Satan enjoys it, but most of the stuff that happens to us, we don't need no help. We don't need no stinking badges, man. We can do bad enough job ourselves shooting ourselves in the foot. Think about that. You can't make yourself okay enough for God who is perfect. I can't tell you how many times I hear somebody say, well, you know, I'm not good enough. I go, yeah, so? I'm not either, so? Does that mean I don't want to grow further? No. But I have found that I'm a rebellious teenager. And when I put a bayonet at my back, I resist, I rebel. But when I'm in love, boy, it, there's no resistance. The love pulls me, leads me in that direction. It's the difference between quitting smoking and becoming a non-smoker. How many of you have smoked at some time in your life? Okay. How many of you are smoking right now, but not, not at this moment? <laughs> Would like to quit smoking? Okay. I'll tell you how not to do it. How you don't do it is to quit smoking. Because when you quit smoking, you feel deprived. You can't have the cigarette. Your self-image is telling you you're a smoker and you don't have a cigarette. I'm missing it. I can't have my best friend, my cigarette anymore. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do anymore without my cigarettes. I'm just going to have such I'm going to eat 100,000 pounds worth of food and I'm just going to be a nervous wreck and my wife's going to hate me. That's exhausting, isn't it? Now, how many of you have never been smokers? Okay, now I want to ask you guys an honest question. Are you non-smokers? How much willpower does it take not to have a cigarette? <laughs> For you non-smokers, how many of you are saying, Oh, I can't have a cigarette! No, you don't think about it. It's no big deal. It's not part of your self-image. It's no great shakes for a non-smoker not to have a cigarette. But as long as you see yourself as quitting, whether it's cigarettes, drugs, alcohol, compulsive gambling, uh, you name the addiction. As long as you see yourself as quitting, you still have the identity of the addiction, you just don't have the behavior. So you must have constant willpower. Dieting is the same way. As soon as you diet, you create a, an eating disorder. That's how you gain weight, is diet. Because you try to will something that was automatic previously. Compare that to the self-image of healthy eating. Very different. You talk to a skinny person, you say, how do you do it? They say, do what? Well, how do you stay so thin? I don't know. All right. Well, don't you think about food all the time? Well, when I have to, I guess I, yeah, I, I eat when I have to, but it's no big deal. You talk to someone that's overweight, 
that hates themselves for being overweight, and they're constantly thinking about food, what they aren't going to eat, when they get to eat next. They're drowning themselves in the image of food and the idea of deprivation. It's don't think of purple. Over and over and over again. That concludes disc A. Please insert disc B.